Welcome back, everybody. The Cross the Crown podcast, or podcast even, episode 83. Josh Copen, your humble, obedient servant to the one Doug Gooden, who is the expert in all things. Just ask him. He'll tell you. No, he's a pastor, a theologian. Real quick, before I get into the rest of your titles, uh, is a pastor by definition a theologian? I know this is like just, I just saw someone say, well, they're, they're a pastor, but they're not a theologian. I thought, aren't you by definition kind of a theologian? He better be. Yeah. yeah. His uh, main part of his calling is to teach. Right. Okay. That's, that's what I thought. Anyway, so also <laughs> seminary director or president, if you will, of the New Covenant School of Theology, which is in Colorado Springs, ministry director across the crown.org, which is where you can get some great resources about New Covenant theology. And not just that, there's plenty of, you know, the doctrines of grace. And I, I would argue the, the the leadership podcast and stuff Doug has done before are, are there as well, which is really good. The three R's of manhood, we can touch maybe touch base on those again sometime and things like that are all there uh books and sermons and you're an author too so you've written a couple of books which is really good and uh, one of them's on marriage and i thought we would delve into a little bit about that today dealing with manhood i have heard it said from very smart people who are really strong christian parents that it's uh, because in the world today we live where a lot of people want to tell their kids uh, no, but then they sit down and explain the 28 points as to why it's no, and they need to understand everything. And I've been told sometimes that's important. Sometimes because I'm the mom or because I'm the dad needs to be an acceptable answer. And the kid just needs to understand they're the authority figure. This is God's role. And God does that in Romans. He doesn't necessarily tell us why he chooses some and not others. It, Paul's answer is because he's God, right? And that's got to be acceptable to us. So from a marriage standpoint, a leadership standpoint, is it ever acceptable, depending on how you word it, of course, for the husband to be like, I'm the head of the home. I said so. I'm not saying that's the best way to say it, but the idea of that is that an acceptable way for a husband to approach an issue. Wow. All right. Let's get into yes, it. Let's go. I'm ready. <laughs> so much for the small talk. Yes. Um, I, I wouldn't want to... Uh, correlate what we do as parents and mm -hmm. with our children right. uh, with a husband and wife there is a a uh, there's a partnership level in the marriage that is not there with children and I think even with kids uh, age appropriate uh, level uh, th there's a there's an age younger kids very young kids your kids you know when they start getting into mischief and stuff which I you know you know it's coming um, at, at Young two, three, four, five, six age group, maybe up a little bit higher. Yes, I'm dad. That's why do what I tell you to do. That's perfectly acceptable. They're not old enough. They're not mature enough. They're not really seeking rationale for your decisions. They just don't like it. And you just need to say, look, submit. Uh, but as they get older, even as kids, to begin to explain your processes is good because ultimately you're trying to train them, right? You're trying to disciple them and you want them to understand why you're choosing this over that. Uh, it's not the same thing with our wives. Yes, we have authority, but uh, there, there's, there's a whole lot more involved in that relationship. It's not only an authoritative relationship, but there's also the, the partner, the helpmate, all of that. So um, one question that comes to my mind when you raise this question is, when would it ever be a good idea to say that to your wife, I'm the head, therefore you should submit. Again, with a child, you have authority and you have consequences that, that 
you can bring to that child. You can discipline them in some way. We don't really have that with our wives. Um, and so to just assert authority and she says, well, I don't care if you're the head, I'm, I want to do it my way. You've got nowhere to go with that. Secondly, in a, con- in a context where you are feeling like I need to say, I'm the head of the home, therefore submit. Uh, in that kind of discussion argument, you know, whatever led to that tension, just asserting authority is not likely to yield anything positive. The, the time to discuss what it means that uh, the man is the head of his wife and, and what the wife's submission looks like, the time to just have those discussions is when there's not a pressing issue. Come to the, 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 the biblical understanding together so that when the hard times come, you're both working from the same page. Uh, now, my wife brought this example up recently to me. If uh, if we were working on a, a decision on uh, relocating, for instance, if, if I got called to a ministry somewhere else or something, and uh, she really didn't want to go, and we were discussing it, there could come a point at which I've heard her out, I've heard all of her rationale for why she doesn't want to go and doesn't think we should go and all those things, and I'm still convinced absolutely we should, then there is a way, I think, to say, look, sweetheart, I've heard you. I understand why you don't want to do this. Uh, I've prayed about it. We've prayed about it. We've talked to people. We've worked through all the issues. I'm convinced this is the best thing for us and for our family. And the responsibility to make the decisions falls on me as the man. So we're going to go forward, which is a a way of saying what your your question asks. I'm, I'm the head of the home, but certainly not throwing that out as a trump card, as a, as a just I've got the, the higher rank. Uh, that usually does not lead to anything good. Right. Well, um, I just wondered because it seems to me that there, um, there is such a, a desire from men to want to lead well and want to do it. And then when the, the woman's curse, if you will, of wanting to rule and running to lead over the man, that it just, I've, it could, it almost seems like it would become a point where it's like, well, I'm the head. This is like, and I, and I remember my brother and I talking about this, like, I think sometimes uh, women, uh, they love us and they want to submit, but I think they sometimes struggle with the idea. I remember my sister saying this to us is the responsibility we feel of leading well. It isn't just like a usurp authority kind of thing. It's that we feel responsible for you. We want you to love us and respect us. And when that's not happening, we feel like we are failing and how much of a struggle that is for them to try and go. I don't have that. I don't I remember my sister and my wife both talking about, it. I don't have that in my head to go, Oh, they're bearing the weight of the family on them a lot more than we probably realize. And so I think sure. it can be such a struggle sometimes to be like, because of this feeling I have is why I'm reaching this level, you know? And again, there's a place for that discussion, mm-hmm. but when you're disputing a decision uh, I think about it when you're on the other end, when, when the authority over you is heading down a path, maybe it's your boss, right? Mm-hmm. Or something. And they're heading down a path that you don't particularly like, and you don't want to go. The last thing you want to hear from your boss is, well, I'm the boss. So you got to do what I say. Uh, that doesn't usually cause us to respond in a good way. And you're not thinking about all the responsibility he or she is bearing and making those decisions. Mm-hmm. You're just saying, I don't like this. So again, there is a place to have that discussion and to bring your wife to that awareness that you really do 
walk daily feeling the weight of responsibility for her, for the children, for everything. But when there's any kind of tension, any kind of uh, disagreement, that's not the time to start throwing around labels and, and even biblical teaching, biblical truth. Oh, I'm, the, I'm the head. Eh. Your, your goal is to win her and to, to move forward together where she's happy to come alongside, even if she doesn't fully agree. So there's some strategy most of the time for, for winning her. And, and realize the, the scripture clearly, both Paul does this, Peter does this when he talks about a husband's authority, don't lord it over those under your charge. Uh, he says that to, Peter says that to elders, don't lord it over those under your charge. The temptation, our curse as men is to be too authoritative. And how quickly can we think, well, she's bucking my authority. I need to let her know I'm in charge here. That's not Christ honoring, nor is it helpful and, and useful. Do you think sometimes there would be, again, we need to teach from biblical world, uh, worldview. We need to teach from what God's word says about marriage. Um, it's somewhat limited. There's like five verses in the New Testament that talk about, or five little sections that talk about marriage and roles and things like that. But sometimes in a counseling situation or whatever, we make someone aware of an issue that wasn't an issue. Now, all of a sudden, that's what they're thinking about well, you're not respecting me or you're not loving me. And they may not have known those were problems without us going, well, she needs to respect you and you need to love her. And we've created tension by pointing to something they didn't even know was an issue. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, when, when our emotions are roused, when we are in any state of, I guess, conflict, um, for none of us, neither of us, you as the husband, her as the wife, uh, or brother to brother, whatever, when, when, we're, when there's any sense of conflict, we are not simply reacting from rationality, from I want to please Jesus above all here. Our emotions, our passions, our desires, our own selfishness gets involved. So I'm, that's what I'm saying. There's a time to have that discussion and get those roles clear so that hopefully we do at least in the back of our mind, have the proper understanding of those things and can get there. We can have the conversation. We've already had the hard conversation about what does it look like to be the head? What does it look like to be the wife? All of that to respect, to love, to cherish. I mean, turn, turn it around the other way. If your wife says, well, you just don't cherish me. The Bible says you're to cherish me. You just don't cherish me. That does not cause Josh to say, oh, I think she's right. Let me see how I can cherish her better. No, I got to defend myself. You got to defend yourself, right? You, your, your emotions are involved, your passions. So there is a place to have those discussions, but when you're in the heat of it, you're just trying to not sin in the midst of that and get to a good conclusion. So yeah, things can be raised that are not helpful in those discussions. Yeah. And speaking of, I, I've often heard people say, oh, you're being defensive, not just in a marriage context, but I'm, I was like, being defensive isn't always a bad thing. Your character, you're being attacked or if something's not true, being defensive doesn't mean you're wrong. It's usually the tone, right? Seinfeld joked about this. My regular tone is not allowed. I didn't know we were going to have so many discussions about the tone of my voice, <laughs> but your regular tone or the tone is what I think when people say you're being defensive, it's not necessarily what you're saying. You can be like, no, oh, that's not true. Or that is not true. And you know, it's not true. And you start finger pointing and waving. And then that's when they say you're being defensive, right? I think that's the hardest thing in marriage I've told people to do, but it's probably the right thing to do is your response doesn't need to be dictated by their response. Your attitude, her attitude, whatever should reflect Christ, regardless of how they're coming at you, you're coming at them so much easier said than done. But I think that was one of the best things you ever said to me. You can ignore the emotion and still hear what they're saying. 
Right. And that's so hard to do. I think sometimes for everybody, especially men, I think, cause we just immediately feel attacked as our role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Defensiveness uh, is usually a negative thing. The definition is a negative thing and you basically are shutting out uh, the issue. And now you're responding just to defend your honor, which yeah. is selfish. Uh, but responding to accusations with truth is not defensive. Jesus did it. Paul did it. And uh, it wasn't wrong for Jesus to do it, of course. Uh, but he didn't get caught up in the emotion of those who were laying those out. He didn't respond to everything he could have. So often he just stood there and took it. There were times when he did respond and say, no, that's not true. Um, but he wasn't caught up in the emotion of it. He wasn't worried about defending his honor. He entrusted that to the father. He carried out the mission he was given. Same thing in our conflict uh, with me and my wife. What's my, my, my job, my role? To love her well, to lead us to where we need to be. If she's upset and it feels to me like she's accusing me of things I haven't done, if I can keep my ground and, and like you just repeated, not react to her emotion and passion and all that, but what is she saying? Is there truth to it or not? I still have the responsibility to love her and lead her, uh, but we don't. We, we get caught up and we, we fight back. And well, as, as you've heard me say before, when we defend ourselves, who, who do we defend ourselves against? People are attacking us, right? We defend ourselves against someone we are now putting in the category of enemy because we only defend when we feel attacked. Now that makes them the enemy. And so we start fighting our enemy and forget who the real enemy is. If we can remain calm and say, okay, they're worked up about something. Let me just stay in the truth and respond in love and, and compassion and mercy. Then maybe we can keep it from blowing up into something. It sounds very, very easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. We're, we're emotional, passionate creatures. Do you, from an elder standpoint, do you, uh, if someone is married and most of the time they are not always, most of the time they are, do you examine that? Like, all right, how is their marriage? I know scripture talks about that, but do you, if you sense some weak leadership or just some comp, I mean, how important is that when you guys are considering, have you ever said, hold on, I don't think we should be nominating this person. Their marriage right now just isn't one that would represent what God's scripture calls for an elder. Many, many times. Yeah. I think it's crucial. Now we can't know, and you know, we can't hit a, we can't bat a thousand with that because people can look good and in, in what we can observe and then find out later, Oh, there's much more beneath the surface there. That's not good. But where it's obvious, where the man is not managing his home well, right out of 1 Timothy 3, and that includes his wife, um, then, yeah, he's not a candidate. And, uh, or if he's too harsh, that goes the other way, too. right? If he's just harsh, overbearing, he's, he's a strong leader, too strong. Uh, he's, he doesn't treat her as the weaker vessel. He's not gentle and kind. Yeah, that, that rules him out as well. So it's crucial because these men are going to be handling sheep, and those sheep are going to be offensive to him and unruly and passionate and accuse of him things, attack him. And if he's not capable of uh, either leading through that or doing it without being overbearing, he should not be an elder. It's interesting. You often see people who have been in the pastorate still are, or, um, or, or working in seminary tell people, if you have feel that you can serve the Lord in other ways, do it versus going into the pastorate. And it's sometimes it sounds like, well, come on, we need strong men. But at the same time, it's the very thing you're saying. You're going to be attacked. You're going to be accused. Even the people you thought are your most, I don't know, loyal or congregate members could turn on you at any moment. And so you just have to be prepared for that. And so I, I kind of get also having friends who've been through some things 
in pastoral issues of why that's that that pops up every once in a while from people. If you can do something else, go do it. This isn't for the faint of heart. So. Yeah, Spurgeon is the one who made that most famous, telling mm-hmm. his students, you can be happy doing anything else, do it. <laughs> and I get it. You know, I don't know that I would be there 100% with him, but I do tell our students that, like, don't just jump into this with an idealistic view of what pastoral ministry is, or even guys who are coming on the elder board. Don't come in thinking, hey, I just get to teach and love everybody and lead the church. And isn't it going to be wonderful? Yeah, the, the easy part's easy. Let's talk about the hard part. And do you have the, the strength of character to withstand? I think that's why uh, in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus, almost everything in the list of qualifications is a character trait. He doesn't give job description except for the teaching part. You got to be able to teach. Everything else is, is a character trait. Uh, and there's a reason for that. You can learn some of the skills. You can become a better teacher you can study and learn better theology, but character is something the Spirit's doing that that life builds into you, that God builds through your experiences. And if you can't handle the opposition that's coming and so on, then you're just going to be a bad elder. Uh, so there is something to it. Like uh, you're considering this, here's the cost. And are you willing to pay it? And can you pay it well? If not, maybe you should find another way to serve. Mm-hmm. And we talk about the leadership issues and things that are needed and the curse of women and men and all going back to Adam, as uh, the Lord pointed out to happen, what happened. And this is where I'm really good at transitions. Speaking of Adam, <laughs> why? <laughs> why is there such, at times, heated disagreement, especially in New Covenant circles? And I'm, my guess is it comes back to the impu- imputation debate, but we can get into that later. Is there a debate over the Adamic covenant? Was there a covenant with Adam in the garden? I've heard some people say, no, but it's covenant light or like. I've heard people say, it's no, there's no covenant. Other people, yeah, look, is it Hosea? Look at the passage in Hosea. It's clear as day that there's a covenant with Adam. It's all on you. Answer the question. Settle the debate. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Let's go back to uh, wives and husbands. Um, yeah. I am, I'm persuaded there is not a covenant in the garden with Adam. Uh, I understand why some of our brothers in the NCT camp believe there is. Uh, Hosea 6-7 is the only passage that might clearly indicate one. And I say might because the word Adam there is used, and it talks about a covenant that Adam, Adama in, in Hebrew, that uh, was broken. Uh, there are a couple of other possibilities other than the man Adam that I think are more likely. Uh, one is Ad- Adama is just the uh, man. It's the word for man. And so he could be referring to the the old covenant, men broke that covenant. There's also a region nearby that is called Adama, and he could be calling out the Jews in that region that broke the covenant. So there are other explanations other than it just being the man Adam. Uh, it, it seems unlikely to me that God would have made a covenant with Adam in the garden and it not be very, very clear especially if that's going to lay the foundation for all other covenants uh, all the way through the scripture. So I just don't find anything. When I read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I don't find anything in in those uh, passages that uh, speak of covenant. Uh, Here's why there's fierce debate, though, at least as I see it. Uh, Covenant theology, which new covenant theology rejects, so we, all of us in in the NCT camp, reject covenant theology, the core, the heart and soul of covenant theology is a covenant made with Adam. In fact, two covenants made with Adam. 
listeners, if they're not familiar with this, can go back way back to Chris Fail's days when he was the host. And, uh, and we walked through this covenant of works, covenant of grace. Uh, the first covenant God made with Adam was the covenant of works. Adam broke that. So then God made a covenant of grace with Adam. Again, neither of those covenants are listed anywhere in Scripture. That is our primary argument against the covenant guys is saying, nah, it's not in there. You, you guys made it up. You covenant guys made that up. Uh, and that is the foundation for everything in covenant theology. That's why they baptize babies. That's why they equate Israel and the church and so on. So we NCT guys reject wholesale that covenant with Adam, both, both of those covenants with Adam. But because, as you alluded to, in Romans 5, we are told that in Adam, all died, in Christ, were made alive kind of thing. The, the imputation of sin into Adam and death through Adam. And some would argue, some NCT guys would argue, to have that parallelism has to include a covenant. So again, they're arguing theologically, by necessity, a necessary inference, they would say, this has to be covenantal. And I say... No, it doesn't. <laughs> Paul didn't say it was a covenant. He could say in Adam, God chose to punish all human beings. And in Christ, he is redeeming the, the, the chosen, that kind of thing. He can say that without including covenant. Uh, and, I, and, and the NTT guys who believe in a covenant with Adam will say, but all the elements of a covenant are there. And my response is twofold. Number one, well, all the elements of uh, fruit salad are there too, but we don't know that there's a fruit salad there. Right. And secondly, no, they're not. Uh, I don't see all the elements of a covenant. What, what are the elements of covenant? How do you even derive what the elements of a covenant are? Again, we're, we're sort of making assumptions and reading it back into to that. Last thing I'll say on this, and then you can push back on follow uh -huh. up or whatever. Um, I, as I've asked a couple of our brothers who hold to a covenant with Adam, what were the terms? And what's the significance of that covenant? And there's a lot of uncertainty. There's, I get different answers to those questions mm -hmm. about what was actually promised by God and what are the stipulations and the consequences if you break those. Because most of the other biblical covenants have stipulations and consequences for breaking those stipulations. So I don't see it, frankly. Right. That's the bottom line. I've read some books where they uh, quote someone and then I go read that quote and that person they cite, they're never citing scripture. They're always citing someone else when it comes to that. Um, I'm up in the air on it. I guess my, my one question would be, is it, it seems that God has dealt with his people, whether old covenant or new covenant or Abraham, um, through covenants, right? He dealt, uh, that's how he would say, these are, this is a sign you'll be my people to Abraham and in the new covenant won't be like the old, um, it's the, you know, you have baptism in the new covenant, you have circumcision in the old covenant, but it's covenants, how God dealt with his people. If you're going to make the argument that Adam was God's people, Adam and Eve are God's people, um, would it then be logical for them to go, well, then he must have dealt with them with covenants because that's how he dealt with his people. Uh, that is a, in logic, what we call a possible inference, but it is not a necessary inference. Mm -hmm. So you pile up the examples. Yes, he made a covenant with Abraham before that, with all of creation and Noah, and then David, of course, uh, the old covenant, then the new covenant. Yes, God clearly makes a number of covenants, and they are extremely significant in what he's accomplishing. Now, what 
the Covenant guys do with this, and so do uh, Wellam and Gentry in at least the first edition of Kingdom Through Covenants, is basically argue that God is a covenant-making God. That is how he deals with people, kind of what you were alluding to. That's a logical leap. There's no, just because he made several covenants to make the next, draw the next conclusion that therefore God only deals with people through covenants. So we have to go back and find the covenant God made with Adam. That's a logical leap. It's, it's possible, but it's not provable. Okay. Well, and I guess if you read scripture, if you read the old Testament enough, a pattern begins to develop of a little Adam or a little Christ, however you want to label him, popping up a shadow and type, helping God's people and God's people rebelling, coming back. God's people rebelling, coming back. Someone giving up his life to save God's people, Samson, whatever. You have all these examples. And so a pattern begins to develop, if you will, of pointing to Christ. And so, again, I'm just thinking, like you say, logically, maybe not necessarily biblically, which happens a lot these days, by the way, I've noticed, is that could you not then make the argument that, well, if covenant, 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 covenant happens, even though it doesn't say covenant, logically, if those patterns exist that way, wouldn't it make the argument that the pattern of a covenant exists with Adam? Again, I'm not saying I agree. I'm just thinking out loud here. I've actually never thought of it that way, but it was just. Yeah, well, that's that's the point. Mm-hmm. Is it's, a, it's a possible inference. Yeah. Because of all these other examples, is it possible there is one with Adam in the garden? Yes, it is possible. Is it a necessary conclusion? Is it a necessary inference? No, it's not. And when Paul is specifically describing what God did in Adam and uses the word type, Adam is a type of Christ. In Romans 5, he calls him that. He does not use the word covenant there. So Paul didn't find it necessary to say that this typology of Adam is a covenantal relationship. That would have been the perfect place for him to do it. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean he didn't. I mean, that doesn't mean uh, just because Paul didn't doesn't mean there wasn't a covenant. But when you start asking that question, well, if God did it all this way this time, then surely he did it back there. Again, you're you're making a logical leap that is unprovable. Speaking of um, logical leaps, and uh, we had a we have done a podcast. I think it was episode 80 on um, aliens. Click. Hello, (laughs) SEO. Uh, theonomy, <laughs> presuppositional apologetics, birth of NCT. And uh, we had uh, Chris Cutler, who I know is a good guy, wonderful NCT brother, commented. And I wanted to get to his response. I forgot to do it last week. It says, I'm surprised Mr. Gooden is not a presup. After all, you have to assume revelatory truth to even make sense of empirical senses. A comment was made that the presuppositional is theologically correct, but not so much when talking to unbelievers because we are bringing Christian theology, theological stuff to... Oh, there's more natural man. But the funny thing is, every time we speak of the word of God, we bring our spiritual words in collision with natural man. That's what the gospel does. So it sounds like Curtis is a precept and is saying you have to make a presupposition of revolution, revolution, revelatory truth to make sense of anything else. Your response. Wow, that's uh, this is such a big and complex question. Huge books have been written on this. Some of the greatest minds of the 20th century debated this, and it's coming back around, obviously, uh, and you and I probably won't be invited to that debate. Um, So the argument, the response to that, so that is the traditional presuppositional 
response to the position I was taking in that podcast. And the response back is, well, you're begging the question. Uh, you can't prove logically um, that revelation is, is required. How did he put it? You, you, you can't, to, to say we have to assume something before we can conclude it, that is a, a circular argument. Um, it's a, it's a, I don't know if you've ever studied the difference between deductive logic and inductive logic. Uh, deduction is, is true by definition. So a circle is round. Well, that is, that is true. That is a true statement. In fact, it's, uh, it's, it cannot not be true because by definition, a circle is round. So deductively, yes. So what these guys are doing is trying to uh, make a deductive argument about these things. It, it just doesn't work. Um, it's a it's a circular circular. It's it's assuming the conclusion, which we don't let anybody get away with in any other situation. Now, I, I said in that podcast, from a evangelism standpoint from a, uh, a Christian understanding of the scripture standpoint, I agree. I am a presuppositionalist in the sense that if God does not do the work, if he doesn't open your eyes, if he doesn't give you the spirit, you can't see the truth of the gospel and respond. But when we're talking generally about uh, understanding truth in the world, then I would be a classical apologist, not a presuppositionalist. And for people who don't say this, no, that's going to make sense, probably. No, no, but I think it was good. I wanted to respond to it. We, we've encouraged people to reach out. So I did want to uh, make sure we answered his question. Before we go, uh, I had mentioned last week that the Bunyan Conference, it hadn't happened. It's happening next week. You will be there in Nashville. And I know you're looking forward to it. And you can find a bunch of old Bunyan Conferences on the Cross to Crown site. You all will be going through Galatians. We did a podcast talking about the theme of um, Galatians, I am curious, when we say there is neither Jew nor Greek, and that is a hot topic these days, um, and I'm going to run out of the room and answer, well, you answer the question because my computer's about to die, so I'm going to go get the cord, is, is that dealing with ethnic unity, ethnos, if you will, of believers, or is it just saying I've heard that, no, there's now no distinction in the gospel among the two. It's not necessarily talking about diversity issues or things like that. I know we've talked about CRT before, et cetera, and things like that, but this is one of the verses non-CRT people go to. No, the unity is in the gospel. It says it right there. There's neither Jew nor Greek, and no one hated themselves more than Jews and Gentiles. No one in the history of, of mankind has probably had a more clashing relationship than Jews and Greeks. So, can they run to that verse to go, no, the gospel is unity. And if we don't have that first, it doesn't matter what justice you're trying to seek. Yes. Right. And <laughs> yeah, let's, let me just, okay. We didn't really, I didn't, I came back, Doug. We're good. I'm going we to, <laughs> no one missed anything. This is a highly professional podcast. Uh, so anyway, Jew nor Greek, is that a place we can go to to talk about unity in uh, believers, or is that not the context of what's going on there? Well, it's not going to solve all of the uh, CRT racial debates going on in our culture today, even among Christians. Uh, what that verse says very clearly, though, yes, in Christ, 
we should not be looking at ethnic distinctions. Now, that doesn't eliminate ethnic distinctions. He also says there's neither male nor female. Well, that clearly does not uh, eliminate sexual differences between man and woman. Think of all the distortions we could do with that, right? Uh, if I were transgender minded, then I would, I would want to go right there and, and go down that path. So it doesn't eliminate the different ethnicities in the world. But in Christ, we are supposed to stop uh, judging people based on their ethnicity. Uh, the Jews according to their covenant law, they were to ostracize Gentiles unless the Gentiles went through the right processes to become proselytes. Uh, that's all gone. There's another verse actually that is stronger in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says there, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even Jesus. And there he's saying, we no longer look at Jesus as a Jew. So you've seen the bumper sticker, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. Uh, that's, that's a bad bumper sticker. Uh, no, we are not to refer to Christ any longer as a Jew. Now, it doesn't mean that he's not descended from Abraham and the fathers and all that. Of course he is. But as the new covenant has been established, it is no longer about ethnicity in any sense. So for a Christian to look at a different uh, nationality and say, okay, yeah, they can be saved, but they are less significant than us, or God loves this, you know, he, he loves America more, we're God's chosen people, all that stuff is nonsense. Or to go the other way and be bashing Americans and say, no, if we were as good as the Australians or Chinese, whatever, none of that. We are not supposed to be looking at the world through ethnical, ethical ethnicities uh, and deciding which is more pleasing to God kind of thing. So, Gosh, this is such a loaded question. We may have to pick it up next week, but this is call it part one of this question. Uh, Jared Wilson, who a lot of people respect, I do. He's written some good books. I don't think we would agree eye to eye on everything. Wrote an article saying that just preach the gospel crowd isn't enough and broke down some of the kind of the things you just did because, again, he didn't use these examples, but people point to Edwards. Edwards preached the gospel, owned slaves, and didn't even release them after they died, which was the common practice of the time. Um, so when we say the gospel is unifying or the gospel is enough, is it really to address everything? I mean, what the SBC is going through and all that, is the gospel enough? Well, gospel, if you mean the whole gospel and get beyond just um, a, a basic death and resurrection of Jesus, but all the implications of the, of the New Testament, yeah, it's enough. Uh, Edwards was inconsistent there. Um, it wasn't the gospel's fault. It wasn't as though the Bible is unclear on this. He just wasn't uh, fulfilling and, and obeying the, the law of Christ as he should have. We're all there. No doubt, you know, people will look back at our generation and say, how did they miss this? Now, hopefully, in Lord's grace, as the church grows, those things that we are not getting are, are reducing. There, there are fewer numbers of them. But yeah, that was just, Edwards was wrong to do that. But that's not because of a failure in the gospel to communicate clearly. Edwards should have read the truth of scripture and realized owning slaves the way he was doing it is wrong, which is different from the way New Testament uh, Greco-Roman culture had slaves. American slavery is far worse, in my opinion, and Edwards should not have had any. Yeah, and I think it all kind of comes back full circle, too, to what we started, even with your marriage. If you're getting the gospel right and understanding what that means, how you're dealing with your spouse or 
um, just anyone, your, your fellow brother and sister in Christ, your family members will be, you know, Jesus said, they will know you love me by, they will know you're my disciples by what? By how you love one another. Mm-hmm. You keep my commandments. Those are, you know, those are two pretty easy, but not simple things to do or however that, that should be worded, but that's all in light of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so that's what the spirit does. And where sanctification isn't a hundred percent right away, it's a growing process, right? That's what repentance is. That's why I've heard it. Repentance is a step forward in sanctification because it's acknowledging I wasn't acting like Christ here. I'm going to work towards acting like Christ now in this direction. So, right. And you don't yeah. need new unrevealed information there. You just need to, the spirit of God to continue to open up the truth that you do have and live accordingly. So exactly. you mentioned the Bunyan conference. I'm going to uh-huh. do a transition on you here. Uh, I was going, I, I had a, a plan, but I'm going to, I'm probably not going to try to do it the way I'd okay. thought. So uh, I think I mentioned a uh, recent podcast that you have just taken your last Greek final. For well, Greek. I don't have my, my, my Greek Bible with me here. You know, I got a wife and kid. Uh, I got uh, a wife. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Uh-huh. Fine. Okay. Well, anyway, so for our listeners to know you have completed Greek one, I haven't graded it yet. That'll be okay. coming up because I just came back from vacation. So I can't say you've passed Greek year one mm-hmm. yet. Um, but I was going to have you dive in. So where I'm going, I'm going to be speaking on Galatians five next week at the okay. Bunyan conference. And uh, I take, I can't remember, do we discuss this on the podcast? I take a little different view than most everybody on Galatians 5. Uh, Galatians 5 and 6, I believe you said, yeah. So are we talking about Sarks, the the issue of the flesh in this context? Yes. And the the reason I I see things a little differently is because of a couple of nuances in the Greek. And I was going to have you pull out your Greek Bible and impress all of our listeners with your prowess on the, the Greek New Testament. But since you don't have it there, I won't uh, I won't make you do that. Well, but a little teaser, but a little teaser for anybody who may want to listen to uh, to the Bunyan Conference when we get all done with it next week. Uh, the default setting of the word flesh in Romans 7 and in Galatians 5 is sinful nature. I mean, so much so that the NIV translates its sinful nature in several places. Which verse uh, are you in? I was able to bring up one real quick on the computer here. Uh, well, 17? yeah, let me, well, that's part of it. Yeah. yeah. 16 and 17. Okay. Um, so if you think of flesh as sinful nature, then you are going to draw some conclusions about the point Paul is making obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think that is the um, the primary intent of Paul using the word flesh or sarks in this context, nor in Romans 7. Uh, if you notice, so are you, so back to chapter 5, verse 1, it was for okay. freedom that Christ set us free. Freedom from what? Do you know? From the old from covenant, sin, from the old no, covenant, freedom from the law. The whole the argument law. through Galatians has been: don't oh, place yourself right. under yes. the Mosaic covenant. Okay. And second half of verse one says: therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Well, he has just said in chapter four: those who are of the old covenant are children of Hagar. He makes that analogy between the children of Sarah and the children of Hagar, mm-hmm. and the children of Hagar, he says, are slaves. So he's basically in chapter four saying Jews under the old covenant are not descendants of Sarah. They're descendants of Hagar. Now, biologically, that's not true. 
but covenantally it is true. And of course, any Jew listening to this would have immediately wanted Paul's head. How dare you call me a child of Hagar? I'm a child of Sarah. No, you're a slave under the old covenant law. You're under the realm of Hagar. That's the point he's making in chapter four. Chapter five, he says, don't be a slave any longer. Telling these Gentile Galatians, do not put yourself under that old covenant law. You'll be a slave. So you think when he says the desire of the flesh, using Sark's there, is talking not necessarily about the verse people want to run to say Romans 7 isn't talking about the human nature. It's Galatians 5. You're saying they can't even make that argument here. Correct. Okay. Because the flesh all the way through here is tied to circumcision. He makes that point over and over again in chapter 5 and chapter 6. And it is the, so it does mean sinful nature for the Jew under the law as the law provoked sin in the Jews. So that's enough of a teaser. Uh, I don't want to give away the whole sermon, but folks can listen to it when we get it posted. Uh, I'm sure they'll be posting it when we get done. So I'm looking forward to it. Yes. All right. And, uh, crossthecrown.org, and you can check out all Bunyan conferences, some of the sermons, and I'm sure there's somewhere floating around there is a take that you've had on this before that they can prepare for. Uh, if you're going to Nashville, go check it out. Yeah, I believe it's in the, uh, is it in Brentwood? Franklin. The, yeah. Franklin, yeah. That's where all the country music stars live, and Christian Doug's going to go hang out with Chris Tomlin. Um, <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. He and Michael W. Smith are going to sing uh what is it? Waymaker for two hours on a loop. It's going to be a lot of fun. I, old school Michael W. Smith's great. I don't know what happened to him. It's just sad. Anyway, go West young man. Anyway. All right, Doug, have a, have a great one. Enjoy your trip to Nashville. Enjoy uh, the steel guitars and cowboy boots. And we will talk to you next week. And as always, we want people to do what? Live intentionally Christ obsessed in all things. <laughs>